Have you ever driven by a construction site and just seen a line of dump trucks waiting to get in, waiting for their turn? As you can imagine, that's really not efficient for that construction company, and they're losing a lot of money doing it. So that's what Meta Construction Technologies is fixing with their new app, Blacktop. Today on the podcast, we talked to the Louisville-based company all about Blacktop. We talked to Nick McRae, the co-founder and CEO, learn about his journey so far and where they're going from here. Amazing conversation. You don't want to miss it. Let's go. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso here in Chicago, Illinois. Down once again in Lexington, Kentucky, we have my co-host, my friend, Evan Knowles. How you doing, man? I am doing great. It's been a long day, yeah. but it's a good day. I thought I'd get a little fancier with that intro there. That's pretty good. Yeah. My I'll friend. I like that touch. That was good. Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but I just thought I'd say it. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Wow. well okay the two friends here are interviewing a guest we are uh, we're really excited about this episode there's a lot of cool stuff that we're about to jump into so let's go ahead and intro that guest we're excited today to be joined by the co-founder and ceo of meta construction technologies nick mcray how you doing man i'm great man how are you good good thank you for uh, for coming on the podcast oh my pleasure thanks for having me yeah, we always like to talk, um, you know, to different entrepreneurs, different innovators throughout Kentucky and the Midwest. And your name came up a few times, so we knew that we had to get in touch with you and and learn about the the product you're building and the the technology that you're working on. Nice. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me again. I uh, am from Louisville, but every chance I get to come to Lexington, uh, I, I take it. So I'm here today and happy yeah. to be here. Yeah, and we're we're actively trying to expand into Louisville as well. There's there's so much cool stuff going on there, and I think I think there's like a weird disconnect between Lexington and Louisville, and especially in the technology scenes, but also just in the the general culture. And you know, any way that we can help bridge that gap, I think, is super beneficial. Agreed. Yeah, yeah as close as the cities are, I just feel like there's not a whole lot of communication back and forth. Um, so yeah, like Nate said, we're actively trying to get more guests from Louisville and share those stories. And then next will be Cincinnati where we're trying to focus one at a time. You know, we've started in Lexington, done a great job there and I've gotten a ton of support. So now we're starting to actively move into Louisville and we brought on a, brought on a team member who we're going to introduce on the podcast soon. We need to do that. Um, yeah, we but, do. yeah, so we're, we're, uh, we're moving in there. And I saw that uh, I was going through the archives. I saw Demetrius Gray was on here. So you're really yeah. slumming it by inviting me on. I appreciate <laughs> the, the sentiment. But <laughs> oh man, now Demetrius' episode was awesome though. Oh yeah, yeah. First, first and only Y Combinator company from Kentucky. That's pretty super cool. cool. Yeah. yeah, but we're not here to talk about him. Here to talk about you <laughs> and your story. So let's start with with how we start all of these. And you can take this question any direction you want to take it. But tell us a little bit about your background where you're from and, and how you got to what you're working on now. I um, was born and raised in Chicago uh, until about uh, yeah. 12 years old and then moved to southern Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky area. Uh, it's where I call home. And um, I got the opportunity in high school to do a, a vocational program where I would go half a day my junior and senior years um, to 
programming, learn how to write code and uh, VB6 and some other stuff that I prefer not to even recall at this point. Um, but it was a good foundation, you know, it's college credits and uh, really sort of launched my interest into software development. So um, after high school, I went to Sullivan University out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky and got a bachelor's in IT. And I worked for, um, probably since I was 18, I got on help desk and kind of got into technology while I was going to school, which was really cool to, you know, help amplify some of the education you're getting as you're also practicing it. Um, but I learned pretty quickly after about two or three jobs in about one or two years after I graduated that uh, I was starting to have a more and more difficult time getting through interviews because the, you know, eight months in this job and six months in that job started to look a little suspect. And um, I started to realize that I was actually consulting, but just going through these uh, HR process of going and becoming a full-time employee each time. So um, after about my third or fourth full-time job in uh, two years or so, um, I started to work through recruiting agencies and actually just uh, start a consulting practice um, that would have been around 2009, 2010 area. Um, and then I did that for a long time. It's just um, probably eight or nine years consulting on short-term three-month engagements all the way up to two or three year long projects um, in Indianapolis as well as in the Southern Indiana Louisville area. I uh, got a chance to see some uh, really cool technology and work for some big and small companies. Um, it was like Angie'sList.com, right when they were going public, was a cool time to be there and see mm -hmm. that technology um, to actually be able to uh, write some features and put some things out there that where you're getting uh, you know a million subscribers that have an opportunity to see the feature that you're developing. It's not often you get a chance to do that. Uh, I worked for Texas Roadhouse and uh, Samtech, a big uh, manufacturing company in southern Indiana. Um, so wide background of just different industries, all in custom software development. Yeah. So with, you know, what was the coolest uh, project you worked on? You mentioned some of the companies, but talk about some of the specific projects. I would say the most recent one that I did right before I moved over to this new startup was uh, with Samtech, the one I just mentioned. Um, they're a um, connector manufacturer for uh, microelectronics uh, and components and things. And we were redesigning the logistics software of how they get their packages um, staged on the shelves, quality inspected, uh, consolidated to you know, maximize shipping efforts and then out the door through customs and, you know, it shipped internationally. Um, so it was a two or three year long project. Um, one, it was just the largest project I had been involved with as a, and it was the first one I got to take sort of an application architect role. Um, so have some influence more than just producing some code and adding features, but guiding some of the direction of where pieces of that logic went. Um, but it culminated in a um, implementation effort, which allowed me to go to uh, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Taiwan, uh, a couple of different locations in China, and actually go wow. on site and you know make sure that the training wasn't an issue, that there was no nuances that you encounter when you're in a different facility outside of what we had um, projected for. So it's kind of rewarding to see it all go through and uh, you know fun implementation challenges there. Would you say you moved into a consulting role because you're better at identifying problems or having a problem given to you and then solving it? What what attracted you so early to consulting? Like you said, you'd get involved in a company and stay there for six, eight months. Why why would you get there and then leave after that time? What what kind of got you into consulting and mindset level? Yeah. I, I don't think I was running towards anything with yeah. consulting. I was probably running away from the fear of complacency of yeah. getting, you know, roped into some or pigeonholed into some uh, specific role or, you know, getting stuck on something that was monotonous. So um, if I saw the opportunity to move up in any realm, it was mostly moving out so I could go, you know, take some new promotion or some new 
challenge or tackle some new activity in a different um, uh, client or a different project. So yeah, most of that really became just a matter of if I go to a different contract three months later, it's a whole new set of challenges and that really piqued my interest, mm-hmm. kept me from getting stale and complacent. Do you find that as a good place that a lot of people should start their careers in, in any industry because it gives you diversified experience and diversified knowledge? It certainly doesn't hurt. I think the mm-hmm. gig economy and the freelancing, I think you find that's already probably more prevalent now than it was even a decade ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anybody who has a fear of uh, leaving a job because something that they moved toward could be worse, I would say that's usually not the case, at least from my perspective in a technology capacity. You know, there's usually enough opportunity out there that it would um, be in your interest to go you know, move on to other opportunities. And yeah. would you say that your entrepreneurship came from that, your entrepreneur, um, you know, Gene, that you're solving problems, is that kind of where that stemmed from? Or talk about you know, where you moved into entrepreneurship and um, how you eventually got to UofL's MBA program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a mixture of um, enjoying being able to kind of control my own destiny and my own schedule and get into those new technical roles, um, as well as an unfortunate encounter with a a new manager that was put in place and kind of divided a small company I was working for um, that was growing and thought they needed a manager in place and it really just split the development team away from the ownership of the company and uh, caused way more headache than it needed to and I had already considered going out on my own. I had actually already um, formed the LLC that I had planned to run this company through uh, but then it was just a, a matter of necessity to get out of a bad situation so um, I would say most of my entrepreneurial experience was out of um, necessity, just jumping in, having to figure it out. Um, my brother actually has been, uh, you know, his own boss, run his own company since he was 18, so probably 15 years or so. And he actually has two uh, construction companies, a deep foundation company and a contracting, general contracting company. Um, and I often wonder where that um, entrepreneurial bug came from, if it was why it suits us better and where that comes from. But um, I think once you get into it, I think it's as challenging and as rewarding to solve some business challenges as it is to tackle technology challenges. So I think it suits me pretty well. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing that I always think about with like starting companies and entrepreneurship is there's no perfect time. You know, I think <laughs> myself included, I was looking for like the perfect time to, to start my own thing, but then I was, the decision was made for me with, uh, mm-hmm. with Fuji, just like, you know, with your company's changes, the decision was kind of made for you as well. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially successful ones, they, they f- have to jump in at some point and it might not be perfect, but they make the best of the situation and that's what makes them successful. I couldn't agree more. I, I think people occasionally look at entrepreneurs as these uh, risky cliff jumping, you know, no care in the world about what happens. And mm-hmm. that never really was a way to describe me or at least not how I sort of self-reflect and look at myself because every move that I make is very calculated. I, I um, struggle with a, a paralysis by analysis. So yeah. um, if, if that hadn't happened in these set of circumstances, it didn't really force my hand. I may never have you know seen the potential or, or taken the leap. So it's probably a good thing that it all worked out the way that it did, but it's funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Survival and you know necessity mm-hmm. driving driving innovation. Um, so you get to U of L and you're in the MBA program. Talk about what that experience was like and um, you know what you learned from that. Sure, I had seen some other um, uh, contacts go through the program and seen some success out of it and seen uh, what looked like a really fun time going through and actually competing in Shark Tank style business plan pitch competitions and. 
it didn't really suit me or it wasn't really something that I felt was a skill set I currently possessed when I signed up for it. Um, but it was part of bringing me out of my comfort zone a little bit as well as, you know, getting into the public speaking engagement side and, and really going out that way. Um, but what really pushed me toward that was this, I don't know, seven, eight years into a consulting practice where I had um, at times seen higher volume of inbound work and I had, you know, subbed out more of that work and started to see something possibly stewing where I could really get out of working in the business and actually start to make a, you know, something bigger than just myself. Um, but then inevitably the uh, pipeline would dry up or it just wouldn't be enough to really sustain uh, what I was trying to accomplish. And I think going back to, you know, the entrepreneur thing in general, it wasn't something I think that I really knew or had ingrained in me or had some, you know, sort of skill set that um, would help me. It was really just something I figured out as I was going. So looking at, you know, studying business and actually understanding I didn't have a business background or an undergrad. So going back to the beginning almost was um, kind of my mindset. I'm going to dig into case studies, really understand why businesses succeed and fail, understand you know, finance and accounting and marketing and sales and just the, the whole gamut that way. Um, and if I can get an entrepreneur flavor on top of that and stop focusing on corporate America where I probably don't belong and look at something where I can uh, you know, innovate and start something new, uh, that's really what yeah. drove me to want to jump into that program. Why do you say that you don't belong in corporate America? What are your thoughts about that? I think there's something that just drives me to want to do more or move faster or uh, not be, it's the complacency thing. It's the thing that makes me not want to work in a company and continue doing something monotonous or routine. Um, and I just, my experience, my short experience with it in early in my career and anything that I've seen just from consulting and engaging, it's just that mindset of uh, working for getting that next bonus or that next extended vacation or, you know, two weeks goes into three weeks. And it's just the things that motivate people. That's not really what drives me. Um, so I think it's just, I would be wanting to push too hard and I wouldn't, don't think I'd get the reciprocal uh, benefit of actually working on a team that could satisfy that. I could be wrong. I don't want to say a blanket statement where I could never do that, but it's just by and large, what I see is not that you find yeah. a fast moving and innovative teams in a large corporate environment. Totally understand yeah. that. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> entrepreneurship is one of those things that is always debatable on whether or not it can really be taught in a school and to have an MBA program you know, focused on that. Talk about how the MBA program, now that you are an entrepreneur and looking back, did the MBA program really set you up well to be uh, you know, an entrepreneur? And did you learn what it takes to get to where you are now through that MBA? Or was that something that you just learned through experience? Because that's one of the, you know, I think that's one of the common debates is can you really learn entrepreneurship, true entrepreneurship in, in school in a structured environment like that? Talk about what the MBA program did to really prepare you for entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, I think it, there's a couple ways to answer that question. One is um, I had a company prior to getting into that, that by a lot of measures, it's not a high, high growth, high scale company that anybody would say that's the next big thing, but it was um, sufficient. It you know provided for our lifestyle and it was uh, satisfying. And technically speaking, that's a entrepreneurship that's starting your own thing and doing it. So uh, having no background in that, I was able to accomplish it. And I think there was nothing that was preventing me by not having an education. Yep. Um, and also to say, I don't think you have to have an education by any means to be able to get any kind of high scale growth. Yeah. But what I, um, the reason I wanted to get into that program was, uh, like I had mentioned, just some of the gaps that I had in my um, toolbox. You know, some of the things that I didn't quite understand um, at its core as far as fundamentals of business. 
Um, that's really what I wanted to accomplish. I think there's many ways to get that information. Um, an expensive way as I'm paying my student <laughs> loans is to go get an MBA. Um, and I think there was a lot of, uh, in fact, I think that program has sort of been restructured or maybe kind of focusing more towards how accelerators run, um, which is another very you know uh, appropriate way to get that same information as well as just accountability, goal setting. At, at the end of the day, nothing is going to replace just the uh, scrappiness that it takes to get out and push yeah. forward. And I don't think it slowed us down as far as learning the fundamentals of business. Um, but I don't think it was necessary to go through that program to get any sort of success either. What did you feel like your gaps were? Was it more business development? Was it finance? Talk about those gaps and, and how you filled those. Uh, well, I said gap we still uh, face and struggle with today is the the team is all very technical yeah. uh, engineers, and we uh, will forever find ourselves talking about this new feature is going to bring a thousand new customers, uh, and that's just never really how that works. You know the. <laughs> Um, getting out, talking to people, getting closer to the customers, really letting that drive product development and figuring out a way to draw a line and say, this is enough to get back out in front of people. It's not perfect. And if you were to spend any more time on it, it doesn't mean that it's going to be any better or more appropriate for that next customer. Uh, that, that's a huge one. And I think the the MBA program specifically goes through startup. Um, I can't believe I just blanked on the name. The, the Eric Reese, the... Um, Oh, lean startup. Uh, lean startup. Lean startup. Thank you. Um, just to treat everything like a scientific experiment and really go through, so it becomes uh, much more intentional about how you go about finding a problem, finding a solution for it that's not maybe just what you think you have, but what's really appropriate and might have legs out in the market. I think you you kind of answered the the next question I wanted to ask, and that's surrounding uh, failing. We just had Justin Hall who does Awesome Inc. U and BitSource out in Eastern Kentucky on the podcast recently. Um, and he was talking about how he teaches coding skills and it's a very, you know, it's a more traditional classroom environment versus being an entrepreneur. Um, but when you're being an entrepreneur, when you're starting a project, you have to fail. Just like in the lean startup method, you have to figure out what you're doing and sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, and then you can pivot and move on. Just like you said, some products or some features aren't going to bring all the users in. All of these things are different ways in which your forecasts were wrong, your your thoughts are wrong, and you maybe failed in some way or another. How does a a more traditional setup like like an MBA program, you know, regardless of how it's run, where you have grades and, you know, you have to achieve a certificate and, and a diploma, how do you balance, you know, the real world experience of needing to fail with getting an A and getting your diploma? I think they did a um, decent enough job to break those two things apart to mm -hmm. where um, in fact, there was a few companies that started off a semester, everybody, every group in this cohort had to come up with a um, hypothesis of a business that they thought they would work on, whether it was good or bad. You know, at some point you have to say, this is what we're going to latch onto and go through the academic exercise. And that we started with this one. So there were some other companies that started with one, didn't go forward, started with another one and still didn't go forward. We were lucky enough to find one that has evolved and pivoted, but it's, you know, essentially at its core what we started with. Um, but you could earn an A um, and and put in the effort and still decide that based on what we've learned, there's not enough need, that there's mm -hmm. nothing proprietary, there's too many risks and we're not going to pursue it. And uh, that's not a punishment necessarily. So they did a really good job of not making it, uh, not, not tying grades together with, um, with failing. Yeah. Um, there is undoubtedly, you know, a lot of business school curriculum you have to go through while you're also trying to go through this effort of starting a business. 
so the the overall pace sort of falls into line with uh, you know semesters and uh, unfortunately with an academic calendar so there's a, a pace issue that's not realistic as if I had an idea and nothing was stopping me from just running out and going as fast as I could mm -hmm. um, that's not a good environment you know in an MBA setting um, but yeah I, the the concept of failing wasn't uh, we're gonna punish you by uh, flunking you out or, or anything that way and I, I think that's really important too because you're right it's, it's a, a huge part of iterative development I like that that's yeah. smart on their end and you'd mentioned that you actually found your core idea for your startup now right so talk about how your did you have the idea before you went into the MBA program did you have it while you're going through that process talk about where the idea came from and how you ended up you know beginning the process of, of building it I had a flavor of the idea that it started with. Um, it was a product, actually, the first time I ever recognized that I was what I thought was building a company, building a product, and never talked to anybody at all that might ever want to buy it or use it, <laughs> but it solved a problem for me. It was like a um, ticket management system, essentially what a, a Trello or Asana or anything that is you know further along now, uh, I was sort of building my own thing. So as I started to get more and more projects and more and more customer facing issues coming into me, I'd get text messages and phone calls and emails and just got to be confusing and time consuming to keep up with it all. So I was building a uh, ticket system that was kind of specific for consulting practices. Um, the name of the product was Relayed and I sort of brought that into that program thinking maybe there's some uh, uh, group think that we can put together, some you know get some smart people on it, maybe evolve it and, and make it something bigger than that. Um, so we started to go down this path of boil that down to its essential uh, core and say if it was just communicating statuses, because at the end of the day, if you're collecting requirements for a project and saying where you're at with this thing, what if you could um, take a dry cleaning service or a, um, your oil changing uh, you know, service or something, and it's a service that's being done in a short time frame, but you have some interest in knowing progress along the way. So if you drop something off, maybe if there was some way that that company or that um, supplier could tell you when it's been brought in for service, when it's actually being worked on, when it's estimated to be done, just to kind of introduce some you know, communication channels out that way. Um, that was a tough one to really take through the lean startup model because customer discovery in such a broad consumer facing market is difficult when you start asking people what's the biggest pain point when you get your oil changed or, or you know, and there's just so many directions that it could go and we never really could find mm -hmm. a problem that warranted a solution. Um, but we were starting to look at just broadcasting information outbound, just where, where are the areas where we can take uh, knowledge and technology and, and make sure that there's you know, communication tools that allow people to be on the same page. Um, so being on this cohort, we got paired up with different teams and my uh, co-founder of the company, Max Comer, um, was working in heavy highway construction and bridge rehabilitation specifically. So we're all out in the community, out in our workforce um, with this mindset that we need to go find a problem that we can um, solve. And he was on a job site watching these dump trucks line up um, at the edge of a bridge project that he was working on and started to look at you know anything that looks odd. Let's go ahead and just start exploring this, figure out why they do that. Um, that's really kind of the genesis of where this idea came from is bringing together some problem we observed without really any context of why it's happening. Um, and I started looking at the skill set that we had as a team to figure out if there's something we could solve. What was the actual problem there? What What's wrong with dump trucks being lined up? Let's we'll talk about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's what we call over-trucking, and it's basically expensive insurance. Um, as it's on a micro level, if you're running a, an asphalt job specifically, 
Um, if I'm the foreman, my goal is to keep the paving crew and the paver moving forward, um, kind of at all costs. Super expensive if it shuts down because there's no truck there, because uh, you're paying labor, you're paying for equipment, maybe it's rental equipment even that's just sitting idle. Um, there's quality control issues if that stops. You've got cold joints and the machines kind of settled down and then you're going to have bumps in the road. Uh, there's just lots of issues if things slow down. So if it costs what we've calculated around $1,000 an hour, if the job site shuts down, um, it might cost only $100 an hour for an extra dump truck. So you start looking at, well, I'll go ahead and have five extra dump trucks. You know, I can cut my cost in half of what it would cost as an opportunity cost and still come out ahead on a micro level. But when you start looking at the whole company, um, it's really not cost effective. It starts to increase job costs, erodes job profitability. It keeps you from getting further progress on other jobs concurrently because the resources are now tied up when they shouldn't be. Um, so just lots and lots of problems that really start to, to fall in place there. Um, and it's just basically if you let the foreman run the job, uh, he'll always overorder trucks. But if you are a dispatcher, you're going to want to know where everybody's at and why you have bottlenecks, why do we have so much idle time there, and could we be better off using some of those trucks in a different area. Right. So, so how does the solution to that problem work, and what does that look like? Yeah, the, well, the reason it's a problem um, in 2019 when you would think that GPS systems are everywhere yeah. um, is because it's sort of unique to the asphalt paving. Um, there's some other areas that we're exploring that have similar problems, but it's a, a very big, obvious problem here. Mm -hmm. They sometimes don't own any of those dump trucks that they're working with, so it's not like they own all of them and the drivers are employed by this paving company and they could control anything. This is going to be a time where some subset of them are owned, but the rest are subcontracted. Um, sometimes you get these really large contracting companies that come into a new area to do a big project, and they don't bring any of their fleet with them. They just you know work with the local contractors that are in place. So as soon as you get a fleet of vehicles that you don't own, you don't get to use the 300-plus GPS systems that are out there, the kind of traditional GPS software. Um, you typically would want to put hardware on them, you know, put it on the engine, hardwire it into the OEM harness, and get all the rich information you could get out of it if you own the truck. Um, in this case, they just don't have that option. So uh, what we do is we actually use a mobile application. Um, and actually about a month ago, we introduced a, a new portable GPS tracking device. Um, but uh, one or the other or some combination out there allows you to quickly bring an entire fleet online. Um, and we call it virtual fleet management, which means you could have 20 trucks on a map. And then at the end of the day, you know, they were owned and operated by different companies. Every driver hits the stop button on the app and falls off of the map. And you really only saw them when you needed to see them. But you collected uh, comprehensive data about that whole fleet, which really lets you start to spot inefficiencies, drive new efficiencies, and uh, kind of make your operation run more efficiently and profitably. Yeah. Um, talk about, you know, you just mentioned the ways that you're collecting this data, <clears throat> mobile app, piece of GPS hardware. Talk about the user interface, because when we were at Fuji, one of the big components about Fuji was tracking the delivery drivers to the fans, and we actually didn't build our own front end for that tracking. Mm -hmm. Talk about the user interface in your, in your technology and, and where that comes from. Did you build it in-house? Are you using somebody else's solution? What does that look like? Yeah, so we did build it in-house. Um, we have a, a plug-in that's sort of best-in-class for uh, battery management and low data usage, so we're not really, you know, burning up phones batteries or costing a lot of money but um, it's a plugin that allows us to uh, extract the location information from the phone and turn it into a gps device um, but otherwise the whole interface on top of that is what we built um, we wanted to have that much control over it because for two reasons 
the first is the industry itself is a uh, an older industry that's sort of resistant resistant to change and behind the times with, with technology. So anything that would be uh, hell, I can hardly figure out Snapchat sometimes. So yeah. anything that's like a newer modern interface is not going to be well received. Um, but then when you when you look at the CDL, the commercial driver's license requirements, they can't even use the phone um, more than just by touching a, a single time on the screen. So it's got to be a really simple device or interface by design to really just be able to accommodate with the law. So it's a, you know, they see the information about where they need to be going and there's a single button that says start. So it kind of solves both problems. It's simple, there's really not a lot of training necessary and uh, doesn't break any laws or cause any concern with um, you know, putting technology in the cab of the truck. Awesome. Now, where, uh, where did the engineers come from that built this? Um, let's see. There's a Kentucky connection, but the, the final okay. location is not Kentucky, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but when I worked at Texas Roadhouse, I worked with a guy who was doing mobile development there mm-hmm. and kept in touch with him and followed his career after he had left. And he um, took sort of an unconventional path, but unconventional in some regards, but it's actually kind of more of the norm with a lot of boot camps and coding academies and stuff that pop up. So he took off to New York, I think. And then ended up in uh, Denver, Colorado, and um, was actually teaching a coding boot camp after having attended some himself. Oh, that's cool. uh, Yeah, so um, when I was actually looking through LinkedIn connections of anybody I have that has a skill set in mobile development, uh, he popped up. Mm -hmm. So uh, that helped us in two ways. One, we had somebody who could jump in and uh, get rid of the awful phone gap mobile app that I had built um, as kind of our MVP <laughs> or prototype and actually start putting it in React Native. Um, but because he was teaching at a coding boot camp, it gave us sort of a pipeline of uh, talent that we could start pulling yeah. from as well. Um, so we've had two or three developers kind of come through, and then the one that we currently have working full-time um, was a student of the original developer that way. Um, so yeah, so it's, that's the mobile side of the house. Um, we actually went through in Louisville, um, Code Louisville's boot camp and uh, had some part-time labor for the back-end infrastructure and some of the front-end web design stuff. And um, I had actually got to, in that Samtech project I was telling you about where I did some international traveling, they had some developers out of Costa Rica that I got to, uh, even one of them I got to travel with internationally, but we certainly worked with them in a team capacity and got to know them really well. Um, so I've been able to um, employ a few of them as well to work in the part-time capacity and really help complement my skill set and really put us in a position right now where I can back out of a development role and start focusing more on uh, customer development and sales efforts and, and trust that they're you know keeping up with the development pipeline for us. Very different skill sets there to try to yes, balance between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's such a shortage in Kentucky is mobile development specifically. Mm-hmm. So it's cool that there's a connection, but it, it definitely makes sense that you had to look <laughs> a little bit beyond. Yeah, I guess the the verdict is still out on whether our specific technology is the the right technology. It seems like everybody's using this one, but it's also kind of bleeding edge, and we find ourselves battling sort of keeping up with version updates and everything. And um, it's been a learning opportunity for me to get into a, a true management role, and since I have absolutely no skill set in that technical space, uh, to j- trust that you know that's the right technology choice and that it's kind of keeping up with things and that we're moving at the right pace. Uh, so far, we've been in really good shape, but it's a, um, a necessity to make things mobile-enabled and kind of treat yeah. things as mobile first as much as I may prefer to create enterprise uh, web design, web, web-driven web mm-hmm. applications. But yeah. Sure. 
when you walked in here, we kind of talked a little bit about the stage you guys are at now. You said that you've been more product development mode the past couple of years mm-hmm. um, up until this point. Now you're trying to get the product market fit. Talk about the process of you know taking the company through the different stages and where, where exactly you're at now. Sure. We were um, working with heavy highway asphalt contractors, uh, paving contractors, and the trucking companies that they work with as a kind of customer uh, profile segment that we were targeting. Um, at one point when we were um, staying pretty local and working really closely with a couple uh, players in Louisville, um, we were making good strides, but we weren't really breaking past the uh, beta to kind of customer conversion pace. And um, the, it just seemed to drag on to figure out where where are we going to find that we've actually solved the problem that's worth paying for to call this a product, uh, a V1 version, a V1 for the product. Um, as we kind of pushed past that, we started to look at other uh, tangential segments like um, getting into light ut- trade utilities or um, trade contractors, you know, municipal utilities. We got into um, a water utility company and just something that was just kind of on the peripheral. It wasn't our core customer segment just to see if there was markets that we could um, find some commonalities in. Maybe what we have is better suited for them for now. Um, that taught us a lot. We actually found some things that were features and benefits that could help out both customer segments, but as we started to just take a step out of where we were at and look at it, we're still at the end of the day just building features and, and benefits for customers that aren't paying for the product yet. So um, I think we did finally kind of break past beta and call it a finished product with one customer. Um, but even still, it was a customer adoption challenge that we were facing trying to get um, a variable-based pricing model that really meant that they only incurred costs if they used the system. It made it really easy for them to not have a lot of urgency to really adopt or implement processes there. Um, so we push all the way forward to where we're at today. We've got um, that same customer, but now we're getting into more predictable revenue, more subscription-based models. Um, I think it was a fear a fear of missing out on uh, revenue uh, mixed with sort of what we were taught with um, some economic classes and things about pricing structures to say you don't have to charge everybody the same thing. There's ways to extract revenue from the people who would benefit the most from it. So we were looking at this variable pricing model as kind of the smoking gun for it. So um, by chasing that for too long, we may have missed out on some predictable revenue. So we're really just making sure we go back to the basics and figure out what's the hypothesis, what's what do we really need to do to start getting customers on board. And I think it's really starting to take leg, get some legs here. But yeah, and and you mentioned that um, it's taking longer than you wish for people to actually start paying. Yeah. Um, at the core, what what do you think's caused that? Because I know the construction industry has been slow adopting uh, of technology. Um, they, they are starting to, it's one of the biggest segments in the world as far as where disruption is going to take place mm-hmm. going forward. Um, is your product kind of in an area of the construction space that they are not budgeting in for this kind of technology? They're not used to paying for this, and so that's part of the problem you're, you're facing is kind of the resistance to change or pay for something in that area. What What have you identified as... Um, the reason they're not paying is it is it that or is it truly you guys have yet to solve you know a big enough problem for them? Yeah, I think it's a, a large orchestration effort. So even if we did convince somebody, which they are paying for the the pain, they're just not paying us to solve it. They're paying yeah. for it in lost profits. I mean, yeah. that's part of the customer education process. Is us really taking a customer education and a sales perspective to make sure that we're educating them and even being somewhat of an analyst or a consultant. So we can help them identify how much of a pain it actually is. Um, but even if we do make that 
draw those lines and really explain to them how much it costs them to continue operating the way they do now. Uh, we still have to then get them on board, including everybody that they work with. So it's it becomes a, a complicated implementation process. That means you're getting three or four different companies to change behaviors and adopt into uh, our multi-sided, multi-network um, Yeah, I can product. definitely see that being a challenge, yeah. for sure. So how long does your average sales cycle look like then? Um, they, they're longer than we want and they're, they were still, well, so we recently linked up with a, uh, an awesome sales coach out of Louisville, Kentucky that has really helped us define sales processes. Nice. Um, that connection was drawn with me reaching out to some, uh, local respected entrepreneurs asking them, why are we sucking so bad at sales? What are we doing wrong? Um, and you know, it's, uh, um, we got the question back at what point do they fall out of your sales funnel, you know, what, what percentage are they are converting down and how, how, and as soon as I started to hear those questions, like, we're not calling enough people, we're not doing enough outreach, we're not getting enough inbound, we're not, we're not really doing enough to say that we've got a sales problem, we've got a, a lack of sales problem, so um, it really just shined that spotlight well, yet again, just that we were spending too much time developing a product, we're not doing enough customer development, we kind of let that <clears throat> diverge a little too far. One of the things I'm so glad that I've gotten experience with early is just the sales, the sales side of things. You said you have a technical background, totally different mindset, mm-hmm. totally different part of the business. How have you developed as a sales person, as a CEO, and what are your biggest learnings so far that have helped you, you know, begin to move into that, um, you know, growing the, the sales side of the company? Yeah, it's it's very recent, um, but it's it's uh, profound. It's just a matter of understanding that uh, the way you were describing that last question of um, are they not used to paying for software? It's not a matter of you know how much does our solution cost. It's you know um, how much value can we add back to them? How, what could they be doing with the money that they're saving that they're currently spending now? And how do you really change their mindset to understand what that problem Put is? Put yourself in their shoes, yeah. and then sell it to them based mm-hmm. on what you learned being in their shoes. Yeah, and I, um, my brother and the sales coach both sort of gave me from two different angles the same advice that. Um, it's not that I'm out there just kind of hustling used cars and that I'm, you know, I, I get this point where I'm following up three, four or five times and I'm like, man, I'm just wearing these people out. They're going to be pissed at me. And as soon as somebody put it in the perspective of you can jump in with a technical background and a business analyst approach and really help them identify problems like yeah. you've done for 10 years and then come in and really be a lifesaver for them. Um, that's where it really is my strength. And as soon as I take that different mindset, uh, they respond better. I feel more confident in sales and it's really kind of changed the game. One thing us. I think I, I bet that has helped you though is your background in consulting because inter- enterprise sales, mm-hmm. any kind of large enterprise sales, which, which, which is what you're doing ultimately, is it's more consultancy than straight, like you said, car sales. That's right. You're solving big problems. And so that's one thing that I really enjoy about enterprise sales is you're solving these big problems. You're a consultant and you're helping them completely change their business and the way they, they, uh, you know, their behavior with your, with your solution. So would you agree that that, that consulting background has really helped you there? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's uh, refreshing for the people who are at least open enough to kind of receive that um, uh, advice or that sort of initial conversation to see that there's somebody here that's actually taking the time sitting in their shop in their yard where they've got all the trucks there and actually asking the questions, trying to really dig down deep into the true problems that they're facing and then provide technical solutions. It's the same thing that I've done over and over again at multiple contracts, uh, just a different industry that's kind of been neglected or uh, not had that that, um, technical expertise available to them. Yeah, it's certainly a big help. 
For sure. So as you continue to focus on that business development and sales and, you know, scaling your customer base, what's next for MediCT in the next, you know, 6, 12, 18 months? You know, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, really, it's, it's right in that space. It's um, we run mostly lean. You know, everybody works uh, distributed and, and um, remotely and we've not seen revenue kind of spike like we've been looking for. But there's enough. There has been enough and there is currently enough in the pipeline that when any one of these deals start to kind of come to fruition, um, any one of them can cut our burn rate by three quarters and really get us so close to profitability that two or three of those things come through and we're right where we need to be to start looking at uh, high scale growth. So um, understanding how to open more doors to uh, get the right amount of customer contact so that we can really start to get numbers coming in to let the rule of numbers play out so our funnel starts to find more at the bottom um, that's going to become it's, it's just going to happen more frequently I think we're going to have much more success with it and revenue will start to unlock new opportunities for us that we've sort of been hesitant on until we yeah. get there that's yeah. exciting yep it sounds like you bootstrap a good, a good amount of this um, and you keep mentioning you know this this scaling this, this growth mm-hmm. um, that you that you want to happen soon talk about your conversations with venture capitalists or angel groups because ultimately you know they're looking for being the catalyst and the capital to scale that mm-hmm. if you guys are still working hard on finding that product market fit what's the conversation look like with with people that could potentially fund the company yeah. talk about you know the fundraising so far you know so we we have raised funds um, we raised um, three hundred fifty thousand dollars back in 2018 and okay. that's what's been able to really allow me to stop working with that consulting business and start focusing on this full time. Yep. And it was painful to mention this far in that I were seeking product market fit um, until I went to the Saster conference in February out in uh, San Jose yeah. and got to hear, I heard D say Michael Sabell's name, but I, I say it's Siebel, but whatever, with, I got to see him speak uh, from YC. And uh, of all the just great piece of advice he gave, one of them was that um, you haven't reached product market fit until you just can't staff up enough. You can't find the time to even deposit the checks. You just There's so much customer demand that you just simply can't keep up. And he said there is absolutely no mistaking product market fit for anything else. And when he put it in those contexts, you know, I was looking at it from a textbook definition of is one customer willing to pay for one system that solves a problem for them, well, there's your product market fit. Um, And he was saying one mistake that companies make is to identify a single early adopter or even worse, to find that a successful angel round or any amount of funding is some sign that we now need to go start scaling up uh, the the team and start, you know, incurring expenses and raising your burn rate. If you don't have that just true product market fit, you're not there. So while we are super close and then by some definitions we may have some value in the market that we have we're really looking for that explosive can't deny product market fit so um but yeah we're, we're right there and actually with enough um interest that we've got from different customer segments things that we actually weren't even really setting out to solve uh, we're finding some that are just really large scale uh wouldn't just be your um, 20 dump trucks for one contractor but hundreds of uh, vehicles in a fleet um, solving those problems in the same way that we had set out to. I think we're really starting to understand who our true customer segment is becoming and uh, staying true to our core customer segment, but while also, you know, satisfying cash flow needs and and building up a customer base that's going to help us grow. That's right where we're at here. Yeah. I've been wanting to make it out to Saster. Uh, Big fan of, you know, their blog and uh, everything they put out. It's really insightful, especially working in, you know, SaaS. That's one of the things that made me really want to, move towards SaaS is that 
the SaaS model is just so just inherently scalable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really fascinating stuff. It's a brand new way to look at business. Yeah. Uh, so I need to go out there and, and go to that conference sometime. You would certainly enjoy it. And yeah. I, I don't know that I answered your question. The, the repetitive feedback that we had with um, most of our conversations with anybody that were in an angel investing capacity, um, can't blame them, but it was just resounding. Your sales process is, is missing or your sales model has not been proven yet. Uh, seems like a great product, a strong management team, probably going to be successful, but not at this time. You know, we're not quite ready to make any investments. And you can only hear that so many times before you start to uh, be down on yourself, kind of take it to heart. But at the same time, um, a friend of mine who does some angel investing, I was talking to him about it. And he mentioned that uh, two things really stuck out with me. One is that the CEO's job is to bring money into the company you can do that by spending all your time beating the streets and going through the hoops of all the angel investing, or you can go out and generate revenue. At the end of the day, it's going to allow your company to move forward. And I was in this mindset of we've got to go focus on investor relations and getting that going and sort of couldn't split my time mm-hmm. well in, in both regards. So um, that, that helped me out a lot. So shift it's, focus and stop. Good insight. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other one he mentioned I thought was just clever is the, um, the industry as a whole is at this uh, competitive disadvantage nobody really has any better technology than anybody else. Therefore, they all do the same thing they've always done. Um, so that's really one thing we're looking at is, uh, especially when we're trying to help with that customer education piece, is to let them know that if you don't move with something like this, then somebody else is going to, and then you're going to be behind, you're going to be less competitive. You'll start losing more bids as a result because you don't have some of that competitive advantage that somebody else now has. Uh, so you know it's too, too inevitable that it's going to happen. Somebody needs to make that move, and then we really start to help them understand the true cost of what it costs them not to make a decision. For sure. So you, you've touched a little bit on this, um, but we always like to kind of wrap things up and think about the physical space that you're in. So in your case, the Louisville area, uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you got in touch with a sales coach who really helped you out. Mm-hmm. What has your experience been with specifically in software, specifically in technology? And then of course with, you know, sales and anything else that surrounds that the talent and the, you know, kind of the scene in Louisville, how has it been beneficial? How has it maybe not been beneficial? Yeah, the there's been a, a huge surge in, in focus in the startup community in Louisville, and I think it's been uh, refreshing to see a lot of the new energy that's out there. Mm-hmm. I have this uh, uh, these seasons I go through where I get really into the networking and I'm at most of the events and then I find myself spending so much time there that I'm not finding the time to go do the thing I need to be doing, which is growing yeah. the business. But then it's crazy because you go back to spending time, uh, I don't know, on the phone or building features or whatever, helping with the team. And then I haven't been to these events in such a long time. And then I do get out to one and it unlocks a connection. It gets me right yeah. back out into it. And then I find so much value in it. So um, th- there's a lot going on, more than I can keep up with. Um, and it's kind of regrettable because if it, if everybody took that same approach that I do, then nobody would be active in that community. So I'm glad that it's there. It's been incredibly supportive with um, being in the MBA program. That's one thing that you yeah. do get at a, a very high cost is uh, connections that would are available to you, but maybe not as readily um, if you're not sort of affiliated with a university or a program like that. Um, so just being affiliated with that has helped us get into um, circles and f- understand things that are moving. And, um, you know, we were we got into the Vote Awards, which was really helpful for us. In fact, we were with uh, WeatherCheck and a couple other companies who are doing really well also. Nice. Um, and it's not just the, you know, the funds are nice, some of the non-dilutive capital, but the uh, cohort mentality and the 
mentorship you give is, and the accountability that comes with those programs. Um, you know, those are really fantastic along with Awesome Inc. as well. So um, any resource that we've had available to us has always had a high impact. I think it's just a matter of our timing and our ability to, you know, engage with everything without it sacrificing the, you know, the work that we need to be doing as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a way that the community could be more, I don't know, cooperative with your time schedule then and make sure that it can be as beneficial to you without you having to be the one to seek it out as a founder? Just trying to think of things I, yeah. based off of your response there. Right. No, I think it's probably there. there's more opportunities to be engaged than there is my time. I think that's true for anybody. So yeah. that's really where the level you want to be at. You want to be missing opportunities instead of saying, I've got a free evening here and there's just nothing to go attend. Um, yeah, if it was the inverse, then there'd be a shortage and a deficit. And I would be wishing that there was more activity. Um, but at the same time, if there's so much that I'm missing out on, then I'm probably not taking advantage of it. Um, you know, I'm sure when you get into bigger cities, it's impossible to keep up with it. So um, the level of access and I think it's an appropriate amount of activity for a startup community. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's what, it feels like that in Lexington. Um, it feels like it's at a good point where there's enough to do here um, that you're not feeling like there's nothing to do. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a good feeling, but I definitely think there could be a lot more. Um, and, you know, like Nate said, we always try to end with the local scene. Mm-hmm. Talk about, you know, what, what's your forward-looking view on Louisville and the startup scene? You're, you went through the MBA program. You, you've been a part of these different communities in Louisville. Talk about where you see this stuff heading and where you see Louisville heading uh, in the startup space. Yeah, you know, um, they've got uh, Patrick Henshaw and they've got the Elite program. And I, I think there's it's been refreshing, like I mentioned, just to have kind of new perspectives kind of infused in there. Um, I see partnerships with Microsoft and just things that are really um, moving forward. And I, I actually wish I was spending more time in there so I could be more involved. Not really that I could shape any of it, but just to be more kind of on the front end of it. Um, just them supplementing the physical activity with a, an active Slack channel, you know, helps me stay engaged even though I'm not quite, you know, presently there. Um, but, you know, from uh, when the time comes that I need to get more engaged, that it's a thriving community that's there to support us. 